Hello, Anya. Hi. How are we? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, as always, I'm great. I'm talking with you and we're talking about <laughs> animals. So right? there's literally nothing else I'd rather be doing right now. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Happy New Year, by the way. New Year, Year. same us. I'm sorry, everybody. That might be disappointing, but (laughs) that's the best we got. I'm all about keeping the status quo at this point in my life. Just don't let things get worse. (laughs) (laughs) There is something to be said for consistency. I will give you that. I like things that are reliable to an extent. Doesn't mean we should all get minivans, but, you know, points for reliability. Now, we're going to be talking about something that I'm very curious about, which is the dog food, pet food industry. But I want to know, this holiday season, outside of the regular kibble that you feed (laughs) Smudge, what kind of treats did he get? Did he get to indulge at all over the holidays? He... He did indulge. We all indulged. Um, he had his first taste of beef tenderloin ever. And I don't think there's any going back after that. Like when he had this first like little bite of like medium rare beef tenderloin, it was just like, oh, a whole <laughs> new world opened face. up for him. Yeah, it's like he could see color yeah. for the first time. So he indulged in that and his venison freeze dried food stuff and marrow bones bison marrow bones from the farmer's market that cost us like 15 dollars each but that's what you do for true love and um yeah he he ate a lot did ruthie is ruthie like a big piggy holiday eater uh, i mean listen she'll do her she'll sit at the table and do her cute little head cock of well are you at least gonna let me try it and i mean she's not she does not like vegetables. I can tell you that much. She mm. will not eat a vegetable. It doesn't matter if it was slathered, slathered in peanut butter or oil or what bacon grease. She would not eat the vegetable. She'll lick whatever you put on it off. Um, but yeah, she got some treats. She definitely indulged a little bit more. You know, gave her a little piece of lasagna. Gave her a little Ooh. piece of... Uh, Ooh, lasagna. French toast casserole. Yeah, just, just a little, just a little taste what? of what it's like to be a true blooded American on <laughs> Christmas Day. Man, thanks for bringing uh, your face. Thanks for bringing carbs. the French toast casserole to my apartment. That sounds great. It was banging. I didn't make <laughs> Did it. Did you make I it? I didn't. I can't take any credit for it, but it was banging. So. So, yeah, she definitely got to indulge a little bit. Good for her. I mean, she's a queen. She should indulge. Yeah. And, yeah, we're talking about dog food today. And part of my motivation was we think about our New Year's resolutions. January is coming along. What is always on most people's lists, this is the year I will get into shape. This is the year I'm going to go to the gym. And this is the year that I'm going to eat better. And I was like thinking about sort of health and wellness relates to dogs and then food, which you and I are obsessed with. And, but like weirdly not as obsessed with food for our dogs. So it seemed like an interesting thing to get into. Oh, I'm, I listen, I, first of all, going back to Ruthie, just a second, I have tried so many dog foods on that are out there because it took me forever to find one that she would eat. And 
I'd never met a dog, a street dog in particular, <laughs> that eats garbage off the ground when we're outside, be so picky about the expensive fucking food that I'm bringing <laughs> home, doing anything and everything to try to get her to eat it. Oh my god! So I, this topic fascinates me from the perspective of just having tried many of the dog foods that we're going to talk about today. <laughs> I love that you mentioned that and maybe we can have a follow-up episode where I don't know if they make them, but like a dog food therapist or somebody who can speak to not necessarily the composition of dog food, which we're going to talk about a bit today, but why certain dogs will or won't eat certain things. And is yeah. it the actual taste? Is it a taste thing or is it like an association or training thing? Um, it's a very good question. So what does Ruthie eat? Like if you're going to go feed her dinner tonight, what is she getting other than baked lasagna and French toast casserole? So the food that I was able to find that she eats now where I don't have to do anything to it, it's called Spot and Tango and it's a, a fries, a, a freeze dried, whatever type of food, whatever you call it. Okay. <laughs> It looks, it's so light and fluffy almost in a way, the kibbles. Um, but the trick is, which I learned from my mom, which helps, I guess, release the, the scent and flavors more of the food is to pour a little bit of warm water on it. And as soon oh. as I started doing that, she just gobbles it right up. I don't have to do anything. I just hear her chomp, chomp, chomping in the background and it's very satisfying for me because I feel like when I've <laughs> done a good job, she's happy. She's eating a food she likes. Um, and yeah, that's the that, that's food she's eating now. Before that, I tried the wet food that or the food that you put water in and it's like an oatmeal. Oh, sure. I've tried other different types of kibble. It's uh, It's been a journey for us to get here, but we've... <laughs> We've landed in a good spot for now. <laughs> but you, you've arrived. <laughs> yeah. What about Smudge? Well, so the backstory, like what Smudge eats, it took me a while to find, figure out what the right diet for him was going to be. And I think for a lot of people, there are so many different factors that come into this. It's just like when we feed ourselves. And some of it is just like the resources that are available to you and your lifestyle. So, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure the people who want to feed their dog, you know, fancier food or to, you know, whatever that means but fancy food can be expensive and we'll get into that for us it was a it was really about the lifestyle aspect of it like we, we travel a lot we're on the go on the weekends other people are often you know watching him by that I mean my family thank you guys very much for babysitting and it was just important that he got used to a diet that was transportable and so mm -hmm. I was like okay like kibble that's easy and then boiled chicken like if i can't make it i can be most places in the united states and i can either find a rotisserie chicken at a grocery store or i can go to wendy's and ask for a grilled chicken sandwich with nothing on it and he can eat that right like we just we need flexibility it's like a big part of how we sort of decide on how he should get fed and i started doing research on kibble i went down this whole rabbit hole like is there such a, a thing as good quality kibble what does it mean how much protein does it have? And then as I started to narrow down some brands, I then started to notice like all of these different food trends. Like here's the grain-free dog food or here's the whole grain one and here's this and that. And I, I talked to my vet about it. I said like, what do you recommend we feed him after we transition him from his puppy food? 
And she said, well, first off, I would be really wary of any dog food that's marketed with people, like human food trends. And she said, that's always happened over the years. Like when we got into whole grains as a society, suddenly there was whole grain dog and cat food. And then we got really into like vegetarianism and veganism. Then suddenly you had like vegetarian and vegan dog food. And she said that those were especially detrimental for cats. So like trying to feed cats like vegetarian diet, she said, just was horrible and led to a lot of health problems for cats. And then now we have grain-free dog food. And then I started researching grain-free dog food and I found this FDA report from 2019 that identified 16 dog food brands that I was considering feeding him that have been linked to canine heart disease. And as I read through the report and I did more research, it wasn't that the food itself was bad, but it's that they had taken out the grain in kibble or the dog food and replaced it with legumes and sweet potatoes. So chickpeas, potatoes, sweet potatoes, like things that sound great for us, right? Like chickpeas and sweet potatoes, so healthy. But apparently they can cause heart disease in certain breeds, including Australian shepherds. And I was like, nope. So now we have to have stuff that's pea-free, sweet potato-free. And we finally landed. This is my long way of saying we finally landed on Dr. Tim's chicken <laughs> freeze-dried kibble stuff. It's got to be good if the name has doctor in it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows if I fell for another What kind scam. of doctor is Tim? Right? <laughs> Have you done research on that? You did you all know, this research and you, did you even verify if he's a real doctor? You no, know, Anya, these are just, these are just this is in the footnotes. Episode <laughs> footnotes for later. It's interesting that your vet, I, I was I was thinking about that when you're talking about, oh, the grain-free, the vegan, and like I I've thought about that before as far as the ways we almost like put our human problems onto animals that didn't exist before like let's face it Ruthie doesn't really need me to put her in sweaters right like she's fine she's never really cold all right but I want to put her in a sweater because I like how she looks in a sweater right because I'm like I'm cold so you must be cold right, right. Like, <laughs> it, it's this thing <laughs> where I'm putting how I feel onto her and that makes so much sense as far as when thinking about the trends in that way um because I remember I mean I can't remember making a direct link but like learning about a vegan dog diet like four or five years ago from someone who fed their dog a vegan diet and that was the first time I'd ever heard that before and I feel like veganism in the last decade or so has really become more mainstream and popular, right? Totally. So it doesn't surprise me that it has trickled down into the animal world. Yeah, we're basically projecting some of our own neuroses and needs onto animals, and there are some places where it's probably justified, and then other places where it isn't. And 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 yeah, with like, the vegan diet too. I know we'll get into that a little bit more, but our own ethics you know, as far as what we think is right or wrong in terms of animal cruelty, where we're, you know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, do you think dogs are actively thinking about animal rights? <laughs> you no. Know? I don't think that's top of mind for them. Uh, no. <laughs> I have a friend whose dog killed like 50 of their neighbor's chickens, and I don't think that was at the top of his mind. <laughs> He's going to have <laughs> 
Oh man, yeah, it's look, it's confusing, and I think this episode in some ways might make it more confusing. But as I said, like we landed on the doctor's Tim, Doctor Tim's chicken stuff. He gets boiled or rotisserie chicken on top, freeze dried venison, little morsels from this really great company we love called Zeewee. It's like a New Zealand dog food company, and he seems perfectly fine and happy and healthy with that. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we've got it all wrong, but. That's that's where we started, and I guess Anya, like one thing before I get, I, like I want to tell you about the history of dog food that I discovered. But you and I have occasionally joked about making dog food. We're like, oh man, we got to get in on this like pet food boom industry that's going on right now. I mean, it's huge, right? Like the value of dog food in the U.S. alone is insane. Yeah, yeah. The when I was looking at the pet industry of in terms of like the the value of it in the US. So the US in particular is the largest uh exporter of pet food. Uh just last year they did over 2 billion dollars in ex- exporting just dog food alone. Oh my god. <laughs> so for us it's like a huge um part of our economy and, and the pet food industry apparently is just like it huge job creator for us. And I was even, I tried doing research in terms of how many new dog food brands have popped up over the last few years. And I couldn't really find any data, but for me, the only evidence I really need is just scrolling on Instagram. And I feel like every day I get a new pet, like a new dog treat company, a new pet food company, just constantly advertising some form of new food. And I'm also seeing a lot more creators on Instagram who hmm. um, cook for their dogs and show the home cooked oh, yeah. meals that they're making. For I love them. those videos. Yeah. But as far as the pet food industry itself, it's, it's huge. Um, and even just the cost of dog food has gone up quite a bit. Um, since 2020, since 2020, the dog food price has gone up 45%. What? 45% since 2020. Oh my god. So cases of dog of wet dog food that cost $19.92 in 2020 now cost $28.65. Dry food has risen from 35.91 to $50.54 on average. I mean, that's a huge jump. And that people are going to pay for jump. it. They know, I think, like, obviously inflation has played a role in the rising cost of just everything in our day-to-day lives, but I definitely think that there's people being taken advantage of by dog food companies because they know, well, you have to feed your animal, you have to feed your dog, so you don't have a choice but to buy this food unless you make it on your own. Like baby formula or baby food, the same thing. Oh, man. That is a lot of money. Okay, maybe let's come back to this pet food idea business, uh, right? <laughs> plan well, of ours. And recently, <laughs> and recently too, um, there was a pet food company, uh, Lakeville-based post-consumer brands acquired Perfection Pet Foods for two hundred and thirty-five million dollars, which includes the brands Kibbles and Bits and the Rachel Ray brand. Okay. I was wondering, I don't know the name of that company. So yeah, we are missing out. We could have, 
our idea that we had a couple years ago, we could have sold it, Julia. We wouldn't have to be doing this podcast. Well, to look, make the ends good news meet. is, I don't think this is going. To be, yeah, that's right, <laughs> super profitable podcast of ours. <laughs> Okay. I mean, the good news is I don't think this opportunity is going away. And I don't think so because this is not a flash in a pan kind of industry. This has actually been around for a while. So, all right, we'll go back to the very, very start. Nobody knows exactly when dogs were domesticated, but by and large, we're estimating it was about 16,000 years ago that first wolf decided to approach the campfire and you know the rest is is history um obviously before they were dogs they were wild animals and they ate meat they did not eat kale they did not eat sweet potatoes they did not eat vegan uh they were very aggressive carnivores and i think the way that they harvested their food is slightly horrifying but let's get this context <laughs> that's what that's what and how they ate um okay so fast forward to domestication what i was shocked by was that recipes well, maybe recipe is a strong word advice on how to feed your dog dates back from as early as 2000 bce in ancient rome and quick note for our listeners this is going to be a largely european and u.s focused conversation as it relates to feeding pets I know there's a ton of diversity in the history of animal companionship throughout the world, and there'll be different regional uh, cultural differences in how people feed their pets. But just based on what was accessible information for me in doing the research, this is going to be like a Euro-US focused discussion. Just, just calling that out on you. No Mexicans? None of my people? <laughs> You know, I didn't see anything specifically, but again, good good follow-up material. <laughs> but yeah, can you believe that? 2000 BCE, you had the Roman poet and philosopher Marcus Trentius Varro, who wrote a manual on farming and in included in that like farm topics um, literature, he had advice on how to feed dogs with meat and bones, as well as barley soaked in milk. And then in 37 BCE, Virgil talks about feeding dogs and his bucolics. He said, do not let the care of dogs be last, but the swift Spartan hounds and fierce mastiff feed the way. Which I thought was like, wow, people were already considering what an appropriate diet was for their, their dog companions. That is really interesting. But the French weren't like, I don't know, for bois? <laughs> I mean, like duck on feet, like they. I mean, let's give them a, a little leg. bit better than that. Anya, you're always two steps ahead of me. And of course, <laughs> the French think they can do everything better than everybody else when it comes to food. And so, yeah, there you go. Thanks for the setup. As you would have it, in the late 1300s, there was a French count who wrote a book in which he described how his dear greyhounds were to be cared for, and this included a special diet for them. And that diet featured bran bread, uh, hunting meat. If a dog was sick, it was given goat's milk, bean broth, chopped meat, or buttered eggs. I mean, this is like a better diet than most What is American a buttered egg? Much. Are they buttering the egg after cooking it or just putting a whole egg? 
just dipped in butter. Okay. What? <laughs> I've never heard of a buttered egg. I hope I hope this is meant as eggs with butter as opposed to a buttered egg. But you know what? I, I wouldn't put anything past uh, French cuisine. Okay. But I thought that was very Hold on. I got it. I got oh, no. it. I'm oh, just... no. You Google this. Uh, all right. Um, the eggs are sealed airtight and can be preserved for a few months because the eggshells are porous and the butter flavor permeates the egg. So, yeah, they're literally just putting butter on the egg. They are. They need to be freshly laid and warm. And then Ooh. they put a thin layer of butter around the egg and then seal seal it airtight and then I guess let it permeate for a little bit and then oh, interesting. I have a buttered egg. <laughs> Still tough, that. that sounds like an easy dinner. <laughs> yeah, right. After you. <laughs> Take that as a, a, a car snack for your drive later. Um, yeah, so okay. So 1300s, French count. We're going to jump again a little bit later into history. Late 18th century England where perhaps not so surprising, we started to see guides and written recommendations for what to feed sporting hunting dogs. And like, this makes sense, right? Like these were animals that needed to perform the way you know, horses had to perform, do the work they were given. Same thing goes for hunting dogs. And so you would have these, I wouldn't call them, they were not pet food you know, brands necessarily, but you could start to see some common themes and what dogs are being given in terms of meat, bones, and then like a brand keeps coming up as well. Um, pet food was not something that most homes could invest in. Again, we were talking about the late 1700s and then through the 1800s. Poverty, especially in, you know, Europe, there's pretty stark difference between what families who could afford hunting dogs had and then just, you know, average people in the village. So, I mean, the reality is I think most dogs back then were eating scraps. And if you think about what a scrap was for people in the 1800s, I mean, that's really a scrap because people were good at using everything they had from an animal or from a vegetable. So these are like the scraps of the scraps is how I would think about it. You know, again, bones, potato and cabbage bits that were not deemed like good enough for people to eat. Old bread. I mean, that sounds like a english diet anyway <laughs> it just sounds like what they eat <laughs> that's not that different my apologies to all of our english listeners who might be offended at the moment anya's just kidding she loves bubble and squeak <laughs> Okay, so now we're moving through like the Industrial Revolution in England and the U.S. We are seeing more people go from farm agrarian lives into cities. With that, you still had pet ownership in urban areas. Weirdly, a lot of city pets were fed horse meat. And part of the reason was that it was just the pro proliferation of working horses in cities. And so like my horse died then it would be repurposed for um, for dog or cat food. So this is when it sounds like there, there's, there you see like an evolution starting to take place a little bit though too, in terms of how animals are being viewed and treated in society. 
Totally. Like as a middle class emerged, an urban industrial middle class, that meant that more people had disposable income. That meant that animals were not just the working companions, but like family companions. And then some very smart people started to pick up on this trend and realize that you could create pet food, you know, for, for that rising industrial urban middle class. Somebody in particular in England, James Spratt, invented the first commercially prepared pet food. It was around 1860. He had seen dogs being fed leftover biscuits and other scraps, and so he created a dog biscuit, basically a mix of wheat, vegetables, beetroot, and beef blood, which sounds, mm. Mm, yeah, d- delicious. And... Um, he manufactured it at scale and packaged and sold it, and it was a hit. It was considered like a massive success as far as prepared foods went. So he was like the first, uh, like the first person who really capitalized. It sounds like on the pet food industry at a large scale. Definitely, and there was some thought about nutrition that went into his formula because he was not just selling it to that urban middle class, but he was also heavily marketing it towards, you know, the British landed gentry. So people in the countryside who had these sporting and hunting dogs and needed them to have good quality, nutritious diets. And this was introduced as something that they could also feed to their dogs for performance reasons. There's actually um, a little, uh, he has a couple things that were patented in terms of inventions on how to preserve dog food. I'm looking at this museum collection online right now. <laughs> so he really was an innovator. It was called the mat, the Sprat Meat Fibrin Dog Cake. That sounds Ooh. delicious. <laughs> I like to think that, you know, maybe we were ahead of the curve. But because prior to reading all this information, Ani, I know we had discussed like a pet food granola bar mm-hmm. for travel. Why, like, don't, in- don't tell people this idea. Wait, shoot. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm editing this out. <laughs> What's okay, wrong with you? Going back to the history of pet food. <laughs> um, yep, never said anything. So uh, in 1890, a British public company took over Spratt's formula and began producing their kibble, this dried dog food, in the United States. And then that sparked a bunch of companies to develop their own recipes for biscuits and dry kibble using what I would say was the nutritional knowledge available at the time, which is nothing to do today, which we'll get into. Um, we didn't really see canned dog food until it was 1922, I believe this thing called Ken L. Ration was introduced, and it was largely horse meat, which was considered an acceptable ingredient at the time, and um, which was eventually phased out. But we did see this shift from the dry you know, dog food to more meat tin foods around that time. And then do you when think, do you think horse meat had any correlation to World War One? Oh, good question. Um. I don't know. Maybe that might be worth digging into. Like, what's your thinking there? My guessing is probably that they learned that horse meat, you know, people had never eaten horse meat before, I'm guessing, and probably had to at certain points in terms of survival. 
they're out in the trenches and they don't have any food and horses been shot. Um, so there was probably stuff that they learned and took from those experiences that applied obviously to the human experience, but maybe they fed dogs that were out with them as well. Cause they, there were dogs that would go out as well on during world war one. So maybe they fed them horse meat during then as well. Um. Very interesting observation. Oh, here we go. World War I created a huge demand for horses to be shipped off to Europe with the U.S. Army. And when the war was over, when the war was over, the resourceful companies that had supplied horses to the army began slaughtering, slaughtering horses for dog food instead. Okay, so you were right. I still find this a bit distressing, but it's accurate. <laughs> it's real. So, uh, <laughs> so uh yeah, well, I mean, I feel like wars always lead to some sort of like strange jumps in innovation. I mean, like to keep going through the timeline, I think, yeah, it was after World War II that pet sale, pet food sales really exploded in the U.S. I mean, we're talking like $200 million a year in growing, which back then is a huge amount That's of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. It's a ton of money. And it's probably no surprise then that a lot of, consumer packaged good companies think of your you know your nabiscos quaker oats general foods mills whatever they're called etc jumped onto the uh the dog food bandwagon because there was just like such an amazing opportunity to make money on it i love venture capitalists <laughs> yeah they were so um, inspirational right very very inspirational um, so that's kind of like how packaged dog food got started. And in some ways it hasn't really changed since then. And again, if you're thinking about commercially prepared and sold dog food, it's basically the same concept that it was, you know, back in the 1920s, you've got the dry food and then you have the wet tin stuff. But what has changed a lot is the actual composition of that food. So the ingredients that are in it the science behind it, where that science comes from, and who oversees it. So as far as like regulating dog food in the in the U.S. in particular, is it going through the same process that human-grade food is going through as far as the approval process? It seems to me that so many dog foods have been put out in the last few years. It, to me, it seems like they're not getting the same type of regulations if it's that easy to just start a dog food company and start selling it. You have to wonder about that. But then I think of like, you know, the supplements industry, like how regulated is that actually? And it's so not. it's not. There's so yeah, many things exactly. that you can buy at the drugstore that aren't FDA approved. <laughs> you know, like weight loss peel pills or fat burning pills or whatever. Yeah, for sure. At like, GNC vitamin shop. I think like in, in reality, there are different organizations set up to oversee this stuff. How critical they are over both the ingredients and the marketing of those ingredients. I'm honestly not, I, I don't have a lot of confidence one way or the other. Like, I don't think that they're not doing anything. I do think like oversight has gotten better and recalls for food that's been contaminated or making animals sick like we've seen a lot of that so mm -hmm. it's good that those things are at least being called out but i'm 
also very suspicious of a lot of the health claims that you'll see on certain foods as well. And, you know, just the same thing with people, just false promises about the organic diet or this or that when there's actually a lot more to a healthy lifestyle than just what we're feeding our pets. Mm. But it, it's interesting th- because I'm just looking up that uh, there is a significant difference between what is allowed in pet food in the U.S. versus the European Union. The EU has stricter regulations, ingredients, and safety standards for pet food than the U.S., and they also enforce their laws more effectively. So, which is not surprising because when you go to Europe, a lot of foods that a lot of preservatives and chemicals that we allow in just our general food here for people aren't allowed in Europe. It's so true. overall, yeah, they have crazy. there, it seems it goes across the board with them as far as what's allowed, even what you're feeding your animals. Which is great. And they are so much stricter. And I think it's for the best. I mean, the quality, the basic quality of food over there is much better than what we have in the U.S. And it's odd considering how much food we have here, but that's a separate issue. You know, in terms of regulation of the pet food industry, it's it's actually not something new. That's been around since the early 1900s. I think the first organization that was started, you know, in response to suddenly like the rise of feeding animals or feeding uh, companion animals and, and dogs at home, according to the Pet Food Institute, the Association of American Feed Troll Officials, so AAFCO, an organization of state and federal regulatory officials, developed legislation for pet food safety. And that was then like recommended to states to be adopted. So that was founded in 1909. And the first language for marketing pet food, for commercial food, appeared in 1917. So that's, it's actually a lot sooner than you would expect that people mm-hmm. were actually thinking about, you know, what, what are safe, appropriate ingredients to include in food and how can that food be marketed appropriately to the public? Did you see any, uh, ads that you particularly liked when you were doing your research? <laughs> that's a great question. I actually didn't. That's a, such a good point. It's Do they show like the mom with, um, feeding the dog? Is Are there gender on. stereotypes? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Like in the kitchen with a an apron. And hold on, let me see. Vintage dog food ad. I'm almost like afraid to Google this. Okay. I mean, these are just a lot of like crazed looking dogs from the 50s and 60s. These aren't too exciting. Yeah, well, you know what? We'll have to do a little montage of these on social for everybody. I like that there's one ad of a dog uh, where he is, where where did it just go? A lot of them are reading a book and then eating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there is, one, the newspaper. there is There is one of little Susie Homemaker putting dog food in a bowl. And her cute little housewife outfit. Cute. Yeah, I'm looking at these. And a lot of them, I mean, they almost remind me of car commercials. It's like, here you are outside in nature doing something crazy. And you're with your pet. But here's the dog food that makes it possible for you to go river rafting or trout with your dog. I want to do a quick comparison. 
because I'm looking at, all right, some modern dog food ads just in terms of like how are people depicted with animals now. And I feel like there's more pictures of people with a dog in certain ads um, versus old ads that mostly just had a cartoon drawing of the dog or whatever, not showing like the relationship between the human and the person. It's just like, feed your dog this food. That's interesting. Yeah. But like, here's how excited and happy the dog looks to be getting it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are cool. We'll definitely have to post some of these on Instagram. These are so retro, though. Um, I love them. I, well, I guess speaking of like the fifties, that's when cable production took on like a whole new format. So you had this process called extrusion that was invented. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay. Well, it's still how kibble is made today. Do you know how kibble is made? No. Tell me. Okay. It's really delicious. It's where you take a dough, so this like big dough mixture, and it goes through like a high pressure heated like tube <laughs> called an extruder to form kibble. And so during this process, the food gets sterilized, it gets artificially preserved, and you can probably imagine what happens to the nutritional value of that food as it goes through the process where it's just like sanitized and zapped and all that. And then it appears as a inexpensive form of feed, which we call kibble. I did not know that. So it doesn't sound like the technology has really evolved. No, it it has not evolved beyond that. And so again, like we're talking nineteen. Let's double check the day. Nineteen fifty six is when you know we had the extrusion process sort of formalized as the go-to method of producing kibble, and it's the same as it was, same today as it was back then. But what has changed are the ingredients. Do you think that they process this food in the same way that other food is processed, like when we send people to Mars? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Anya, I'm sure that uh, (laughs) Neil Armstrong was eating uh, friskers. oh my god it's um it is kind of gross and the more time you spend reading about how kibble's made you watch some videos of it you're kind of like i would never eat that why would i ever feed that to anything else yep yeah, but I try to keep it in perspective, too, is my dog literally eats garbage off the floor <laughs> and when we're outside and eats duck poop. So whatever Ooh. the process is of this is way better than anything <laughs> that she just indiscriminately chooses to eat outside. <laughs> we had a dog growing up who loved goose poo, and I just I don't understand it. And I was like, God, like, is there a nutritional deficit that she's experiencing that makes her want to eat it? Or is there just something really wonderful about goose and duck poo that they get excited for? I think it's a scent thing as well. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Who knows? (laughs) No, that's gross. But anyway, um, 
if we fast forward to today, I think we can break down dog food into the following buckets. So we've got kibble, and then I will say by extension kibble, we have freeze-dried raw food, which is not exactly the same, but, you know, it's like pellet-y, relatively shelf-stable stuff. Then you've got canned food, and I, I thought this was really interesting. About 60 to 80 percent of the content of canned dog or cat food is actually water really yeah so you're getting ripped off you're basically getting ripped off and you think that there's more protein in these things and that's sometimes not always true because there's so much water and liquid that the amount of actual like meat that they're getting is sometimes not that much more significant than a high quality, high protein kibble. I thought that was pretty nuts. I did not know that. Because wet food is, I think, typically marketed as less expensive. Exactly. Too, but as a full meal. For sure. And in the cheapest varieties of canned dog food, like not only do you have the really high water content, but you get some really weird stuff that gets put in there. So these things called grain gluten and protein gels can be added to wet dog food to create artificial meaty chunks that look like real meat. Basically, it's like Beyond Burger in dog food form. And I have to say, that does not sound so nice either. No. No, it doesn't. None of this sounds appealing, by the way. None of it. No, it's... So, I we don't feed him canned food. I, I was not motivated to do that before. Definitely not doing it now. I know there are good quality brands, but I'm still kind of freaked out by both the water content and the, um, the meaty gels. I've gotten canned food if I am in a bind and there's as far as like, I just need a couple cans if I forgot to bring food or ran out so that she has a little bit of something to eat because I don't want to buy a full bag, even a small full bag of kibble that I typically wouldn't use anyway. But because they don't sell really like single, I've it's rare that I've seen just like a single serving of dog food. Oh, yeah, I've you're seen right. them before. Huh. I've seen it like at stores where they maybe have like just single little serving of kibble. But it's rare that you can find that. That is rare. Yeah, and be good for travel. It's my, This is like such a weird memory, but I'll, I'll never forget. It was 2000, 2010, and I am on a train going from Vienna to Berlin. And there's this really well-dressed woman sitting on the train across from my seat. And she has this little dog with her. At one point during the trip, she takes out a can of small sausages and a can opener and she opens it up and it's pulling like each little sausage out of the tin and this dog's like slobbery little mouth like scarfed it up and then she'd reach in and pull another one out. I think she went through most of the tin. It seemed like way too much sausage for anything to be eating, but sh she would have benefited from a single serving package, that is for sure. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I love that you but saw was... this little lady. Yeah, she was a she was a vision, um, but yeah. So kibble canned; those are the traditional dog food varieties that we've seen for a while. 
It was cool that you mentioned those Instagram and TikTok videos of people preparing meals for their dogs because those have become so popular. And I actually really enjoy watching them, even though I don't like home cook food for him like that. Those videos tend to be based on two different approaches to feeding, one of which is raw and the other is fresh. Raw dog food has become really popular to talk about on social media and in the newspapers. So it, it has been around for a really long time. And I think if you go back even to the like 60s and 70s, people who maybe would have been like, you know, called sort of granola or the natural food people mm. before natural food became more socially um, common. A lot of those people were feeding their dogs raw because they recognized the nutritional issues associated with kibble and canned food at the time and raw food is is exactly what it sounds like you're feeding your dog food that hasn't been cooked or processed in any way mm -hmm. there are supposed to be a ton of nutritional benefits to it and i remember when i was reading about it thinking about okay well how do we want to feed smudge like raw food was one of the first things that came off the list for me just because it is a really complicated diet to do. I mean, you're, you need to be able to transport raw meat around while you're traveling. That's not always possible. But there are also a lot of, not necessarily for the dog. I mean, yes, like the dog can get sick from raw food that's not properly harvested or stored. But what made me nervous was just the bacteria that can exist in their mouths after eating raw. And then if they lick you, if they lick like a little kid, babies, just the possibility for contamination of things that are really bad for us is much higher with a raw diet, just based on my research. And between that and the inconvenience factor, that was like enough for me to say this is probably not the best lifestyle fit for us. Oh, no, I would be terrible at upkeep, doing upkeep with that. I needed something easy. I feed Ruthie... <laughs> I feed Ruthie once a day. I put her full serving in there. She doesn't always eat it all at once. Um, She's a lady. I, let, I let her kind of decide when she eats. And I know that's not totally recommended and that you're supposed to have your dog on a schedule. But I just let her eat when she wants to eat. And it's fine. It's been working. There's been no issues. <laughs> I haven't seen. She got her checkup a few weeks ago. She was healthy. Good to go. Lost a couple pounds, which she All needed right. to do. But um, yeah, the raw diet, I wouldn't be able to do. And it's expensive. It's so um, expensive. My mom actually makes her dog food. Oh, but it's no like way. pretty basic. It's not raw, but it's so she's doing fresh shredded, shredded chicken, a little bit of white rice, carrots, celery. Um, and I think she sprinkles some sort of vitamin in it. And she just cooks it in bulk and then freezes it. And then Good we'll have it for mom. like a month. Yeah, it's That's pretty amazing. impressive. And she keeps, sending me, she keeps sending me the recipe being like, look, it's so easy. I'm like, mom. I just started doing my taxes a few years ago. Okay. I'm, I'm just learning to be an adult still. <laughs> Give me time. Give me time. But, okay. So your mom is ahead of the curve because a lot of, you know, again, those cooking videos that we see online, they're related to fresh food. And so people mm -hmm. making not necessarily raw diets for their dogs, but homemade. And it's so fascinating to me. Like, I love the videos where people are like, 
cooking brown chicken and they're adding a scoop of brown rice and then the blueberries and the carrots and then the spinach goes in and but then what, maybe at they what serve point are those egg. people doing those things to make you feel bad about yourself and they're just showing off okay like at what point are these people making it seem like this is the best way to do this and I'm showing you how superior of a dog owner I am to you. I think there's a little bit of ego in it when they're doing that. Oh, I'm sure. And I do feel bad. And I think, oh my God, like he's going to do like, I, I'm convinced too, doing it for the chicken. gram. They're doing yeah, it for the gram. They're not cooking too. that for their dog every day. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. Those Most of those people are frauds. It's like when you see those those stay-at-home moms who are mom influencers and they're like look at my perfect day of how I take care of my family and everything is just we wake up at 6 a.m we do our daily meditations I make my smoothie I go for my run then I get my kids ready for school then we go to practice and then we go have family dinner and it's just like (laughs) that is what these people are doing when they're putting extra stuff in their dog food and making these fancy meals for them. I'm convinced of it. It's not an everyday thing that they're doing this. I this is like a, the... I treat my dog once a week <laughs> to a special meal type of, type of thing. There's no way. I look forward to our follow-up episode where you out all of these dog influencers on Instagram for not actually feeding their dogs these fresh things every day. But the aspiration is real, Anya. And it's real enough that all of these companies have popped up over the last few years. Like, I don't remember this from growing up, but the, like these fresh direct to consumer dog food companies. So the farmer's dog, Ollie, like these places that are basically making what your mom makes at home and shoving it into a little plastic bag and then shipping it to you, you know, fresh over ice. That is becoming charging you a hundred dollars for a, yeah. a sausage roll stuffed with dog food. Totally. And they probably love these TikTok videos because yeah, you and I watch them. We're like, oh my God, we want to do that for our dog, but we can't. We don't have the time or the whatever it is to make these gourmet meals at home. But hey, look, you can go to the farmer's dog or you can go to Ollie's and you can get a subscription to have this food made by somebody else, but it's still fresh and delicious and it ships directly to your door. And you can make yourself feel good as a dog owner that you are getting them exactly. fresh food. Yeah. And, and then that's you can priceless. post about it and be like, ooh, look at this fresh food that I got my dog. Totally. Look at me. It, I, I, I spend enough time at the dog park where I the way people have talked about food, too, what they feed their dogs, it's definitely like they're trying to one-up. Where it's like, oh, mm. I, I feed my dog this this particular brand because – um, I read about all of this. Like they listen to our podcast, right? It's like if they were listening to our podcast and they like are now an expert. <laughs> <laughs> like I pretend to be on any subject that I listen to a podcast on. I'm officially an expert on it. They're going to listen to this episode and start spouting hard facts from this and acting like they know it better than everybody else in terms of what they're feeding their dog. Well, my conclusion after all this research is that there are some there are some truths that the quality of processed food, just as is for people, for pets, is not is not great. 
there are some brands that would be considered better. What does better mean in the case of mm -hmm. a dog? It usually comes down to the protein. So what percentage of protein exists in that food? So if you are going to get your dog a um, a kibble or a canned food, like really focus on what is the actual protein count and be on the lookout for filler ingredients. So what else is being cut into it? Well, but, I was going to also tell you there's a new type of protein as well that is on the rise, um, oh God, insect protein. And there's what? a pet food producer, yeah, a pet food producer called Picuro, which is a European brand, and they've had a rise in sales of 300% in 2022, where now it, they're making- Is it crickets? It, it's supposed to be more sustainable. Um, okay. And- it's technically like not a vegan diet or vegetarian diet, but it's more sustainable because it's insects versus like supporting like meat farms and all this kind of stuff where you would get protein huh. for your animals. So that's interesting too, as far as like a new area that is being expanded on or explored in terms of yeah. the type of food that we feed our dogs. This I seems less seen kooky that. to me for some reason. It and so it seems is it resourceful like in kibble? a way. Like, it doesn't it say so in this article what type of insects. But that's what I'm imagining. I mean, look, I I see nothing wrong with that. That sounds great. Like, it's better for the planet as long as your dog is getting the same quality and amount of protein it's supposed to have. Like, that's – it's a win-win, right? Maybe not for the crickets, but the cows are I wanted, happy. I want to tell you something, by the way about Dr. Tim. Okay. He is a real vet. But I think we need <laughs> to I think we need to really ask ourselves are veterinarians doctors? Do they deserve <laughs> put doctor in front of their name? Probably depends on the the vet. I mean, I think yeah, this is this is next episode. Next episode, bringing it back to the dog food. So whether or not feeding raw or fresh means that your dog is going to have a significantly longer life than somebody else's dog, I have also come to the conclusion that, on the whole, you probably give it better chances. But there are so many other things that get factored into whether or not a dog is going to have a long life, things that you can control, way animals develop cancers and stuff like that. Like, I grew up with the world's pickiest German Shepherd who did not want to eat raw, who did not want to eat fresh unless it was like sirloin steak that my mom made for him. He liked to eat kibbles and bits, which I would never feed smudge. But that was that was the only food that he wanted to eat, that and steak. And so that's what he got, and he lived to be 13 years old and was totally healthy and happy and all that. And I know people who fed their pets raw and fresh, and their dogs passed away sooner than you would expect. Like there's that's just, like the people that you know stuff. that smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and yeah, right. live to 120. Yeah, he, he was that equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So where does that leave us? I mean, again, it's the same thing with trying to feed yourself. There's a lot of information on the market, some of it helpful, some of it misleading. Ultimately, what it comes down to is what is possible for you. What resources do you have available to you to take care of your pet? 
What information do you have available to you to help you evaluate these options? And then you and by extension, your animal's lifestyle. And I think if you can have some really honest conversations with yourself about those things and leave that conversation with yourself, trying to find the best quality food option that makes sense, you know, your, your dog will be okay. They'll be happy. I, I feel like dogs don't care as much as we do, obviously, to a certain extent. I mean, I, yeah, they, they will, what I've learned too is when they're hungry, when they get to a point where they're like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to protest anymore. They will eat the food eventually. Now you don't want to put them in that <laughs> position, I feel like, but they will eat it. They'll get to a point. I mean, they will eat you. They will get to a point. If you guys, if you died on an island with them, they would eat you. So they Fun, don't yeah. care. There's no loyalty. There's no loyalty. <laughs> I will remember this conversation the next time I see you feeding an Auntie Anne's pretzel or Ruthie at an airport. <laughs> and she's probably thinking, man, I'm going to eat this brawn. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she's thought about it for sure. <laughs> Well, Julia, thank you for doing all this research. This is very interesting. I had literally knew none of this for the most part, particularly like the history of how dog food has come into existence in our world. Uh, and now all I'm thinking about is how do we get in on it? <laughs> I'm thinking about that too. Also, you're welcome. It's a huge topic. Like we really just scraped the surface today. I think there's going to be opportunity for us to follow up on this. I would love to bring in some like food, dog food nutritionists for follow-up conversations, but consider this our entry point to the dog food discussions in 2024. And yeah, now I'm wondering like, how can we cash in on this? But also now I'm hungry. I think I need to go think about myself for a moment. I'm going to go get a donut. Um <laughs> my local bakery for everyone that listened thank you follow and subscribe on itunes and spotify follow us on the instagram at the furfluencers uh and sign up for our upcoming newsletter at thefurfluencers.com and let us know what you're feeding your dogs how do you satisfy their bellies goodbye send us your recipes